Take your copy of God's Word, turn to Galatians chapter 3, 15 through 22. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that in passages like this one, we quickly and easily see that our time, as sophisticated as we are in all the technology that we have before us, we are not nearly as clever as we pretend to be. How we can read a passage like this and it honestly can confuse us. And we can understand some of the terms, but without great effort, it does not come easily. And so we ask now that you would help us. Help us put the effort in that our our wills would be stirred. Our minds would be stimulated to understand the scriptures. We ask that your spirit would work within us. That we may hear the word and it be applied to our lives through his work. Lord, that is a task far greater than any man or woman. To apply the word of God to our lives. That's something only the spirit can do and so we ask for his help. We ask that you would give us understanding. Give light and life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My 11th grade math teacher went crazy. And I'm talking maybe two and a half weeks into the school year, her brain broke. And she was done. Like, walked out of class one day, never came back, she was finished. It broke her. I think that was actually the moment when I realized teaching was a little bit more difficult than what maybe sometimes it gets billed as. (laughs) It's difficult to have to deal with teenagers or children. 
But the result of it is they had to have somebody to teach Algebra 2 or whatever it was, pre-cal, I don't remember. And uh, not a lot of people that can easily just step in and jump in and pick up higher level math in school or whatever. And so they ended up classically with the assistant football coach, which of course was just the perfect fit. (laughs) Top shelf math, let's go get the football coach. All right, fine. Uh, But it was actually providentially a beautiful arrangement because of the way that man helped shape my life. So many uh, wise proverbs I picked up from that man. So many ways my life was shaped from his football coach Christian wisdom being applied in the classroom. I remember his motivation for evangelism was always, I'm going to evangelize you because you might be the last person that needs to be converted. And I'm ready to go to heaven, so you better change your heart. It was great. It was wonderful. He, you know, big on not sinning because he knew that if he, he did grievous sin, that would be the second the Lord Jesus came back and found him doing something particularly heinous. And that was not how he wanted the Lord Jesus to find him on the second coming. But he, he also had kind of just great wisdom in terms of math and just lay of the land in life. And, uh, you know, you get into higher level high school math and there is much complaining, particularly about the word problems. Uh, and I remember one of my classmates voicing that quite loudly one day. And, you know, coach, why do we have to do these word problems? They're stupid. They're dumb, blah, blah, blah. And I remember his answer because he kind of paused for a second. He's like, you don't, you don't get it, do you? And they're like, that's why I'm complaining. You know, of course I don't get it. That's the and his response was kind of quick. He said, you don't get it. Actually, the word problems are the whole point. And you could kind of look and go, what? You see the whole class kind of their brains breaking. He's like, word problems are the whole point. No one's ever going to catch you on the street and go, I need you to explain to me the difference between sine and cosine right now. Quick, go. No, no one's ever going to do that. But you will constantly find yourself in life where you will need to figure things out. And the difference from sine and cosine might actually be able to do that. And the whole point of math is not to learn the theory, it's to learn the practice. It's not simply to be able to recite the formulas and know how to apply the quadratic equation. It's how to actually implement it. Right? That's the whole point of word problems is using them. Watch the documentary this week, the, the quadratic equation, those that we despise, were discovered in ancient Syria for the purpose of figuring out square footages of fields so they knew how much seed to plant. Absolutely applicable. It's the whole point of how to use it. It's in this section where Paul's going to kind of rhetorically answer the question of, well, so what about the law? If you've been for two and a half chapters at this point saying to us, we need gospel, we need gospel, we need gospel, so what about the law? Is it just some gigantic word problem that we go, neat, that's difficult, I can't solve it, it's impossible, see ya and forget about it? Or do I do something with it? What do I do with this divine word problem that was contained on two tablets many, many years ago? And we're going to look at it in three themes. Actually, providentially, the three themes we're going to look at match the paragraph breaks in the ESV. 15 through 18, 19 and 20, 21 and 22 are going to be our three breaks. But the first thing that we're going to see come out, and this principle that Paul's going to apply, is God's promises 
are the foundation for salvation, not the fulfillment of the law. And this is what he's been building the entire book to get to. God's promises are the foundation for salvation. Right, he's working all of this out. He picks up in verse 15 to give a human example, brothers. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. And okay, we kind of get that, right? When you went and bought your house, you met with all of the legalese people, and they handed you a stack of papers about this size and said, you have to sign it all, and once you're done signing it, you will pay for the rest of your life. Right? And once you got done signing everything... Could they then renegotiate the price? <laughs> oh, by the way, now that you signed it, you have to pay 50% more. No, no, it was yours. Once you signed it, you were stuck with that mortgage, right? For all of the price that you uh, negotiated it for. If you happen to buy your house in 2007, I'm sorry, right? You signed on that and then noticed that your house dropped in value shortly after that, but you couldn't change what you paid for it. The covenant, the contract was signed. And Paul picks this up as an illustration of God's covenant. God's covenant, when he makes his covenant, when he makes his legal agreements, they're fixed. They can't be renegotiated. They can't be changed. You don't add to it. You don't just ignore it, right? After you bought your house, the previous owners couldn't say, well, why are you in my home? Can you imagine that, actually? How weird would that be? You just bought your house, they hand you the keys, and you walk up and you unlock it, and you you open the door, and there's somebody there, and it's like, I made you cookies, welcome. You're like, what are you doing? Well, this is my house, too. No, I, I just bought it. You can't change the terms of the deal. I bought the house, go away and take your stuff with you. It's mine, right? I bought it. The deal can't be changed. It's fixed. It's It's in concrete. It's, you know, it's in stone. It's set. And Paul introduces this for the promises of God. When he accomplishes something, when he does a covenant, this arrangement of his, it is unchanging. His promises do not change. Right? Well, okay. That's neat and all. God's promises don't change. So what? What's the big deal with that? Well, he's going to then explain why that's so important. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, verse 17, and this is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterwards is not a... He's actually setting a historical illustration of the promises of God. All right, so creation, God makes Adam and Eve perfect. Adam is a bozo, just like you and me, and he does not stay perfect and sins. We get the impression fairly rapidly. Sin enters the world, God curses the world, and humanity lives in death and destruction after that, every day. They live in death and destruction, and it is so bad with their prolonged lifespan, they have the ability to accomplish so much evil, that God eventually is so grieved, he destroys them all except for eight. So I'm going to start over again. I'll kill all of the really rotten ones. I'll leave the eight that are okay. And it turns out the eight that are the best of the best, they don't turn out very good, do they? And just a couple of chapters later, you're like, oh my goodness, what are you doing? And as you continue to read through history, it's just disaster after disaster until the Lord chooses one man. 
man named Abram, who he will change to Abraham, who was a pagan. Abram was not a great man. He wasn't a man that you look at and you'd go, oh, he is the epitome of what a good man looks like. Right? He's not a guy that you, you, you want to crown him as president of the world. He was a pagan dude. He was a guy. And the Lord comes to Abram and he begins by making, in essence, a promise. <laughs> a promise that the Lord would bless him. Blessing after blessing after blessing. And that promise would build as that relationship built. And the Lord would... <clears throat> Increase his promise that it wouldn't just be a blessing for Abraham and his people. He'd be a blessing for, for all nations and they would all come through him and his offspring would be like the stars of the sky and be built ultimately to this formalized promise called a covenant in which it's like a very serious arrangement, a bond in blood, the most life-altering of agreements. right? An agreement that's only dissolved ultimately by death. And in that promise, the Lord promises salvation and blessing. Right? So you're getting his argument here that the Lord's promises are unchanging. They're good, they're faithful, they're unchanging. And the first promise to look at is this promise to Abraham that he will bless all of the nations through him. And ultimately, he explains in verse 16, that would be fulfilled in Jesus. Now, all nations would be blessed by Abraham and the Jews, but ultimately it would build to Jesus, which is why most of us in here are not Jews. Most of us aren't, but yet we are still recipients of that promise. We receive the the blessings of his promise. But Paul's not done with his illustration. He's saying, look, the promises are good, and the promises were given prior to the arrival of the law. That's the key of this section 15 through 18, is that God's promises were given, they're faithful, they're given to Abraham, and then verse 17, and 400 years and change later is the law given to Israel. The do's and don'ts come after the promises, not before. I'll, I'll say that again, just so you can kind of wrap your brain. The do's and don'ts come after the promises, not before. Because, you see, what Paul is interacting with here is a church that is reversing the order. A church that's saying, I have to have the do's and don'ts right in order for the promises to follow. I have to have the do's and don'ts right in order for the relationship to follow. I have to have the do's and don'ts right in order for salvation and resurrection to follow. I have to be right in order for God to know me or to love me. And Paul's correcting that by saying in this section, look, Galatian church, you've got the cart before the horse. You've got the the order backwards. If you want to go back to the Garden of Eden, if you want to go back to where Adam was and trust in works, 
That's not a very smart plan. Right? What was the deal that was given to Adam? Be perfect, and what will happen? Well, you'll live. And you'll live forever, and it will be delightful. But the second that you sin will be the second that you die. You die spiritually, and you you pave the way for physical death, which would come later. And then through the curse, death enters into all of creation. Death, death, death everywhere. And the Galatian church is, in essence, saying, look, we, we, we like the idea of the do's and don'ts determining our relationship with God. And Paul's saying, look, that's the garden. That, that's the wrong pattern. As Christians, we don't appeal to the garden. We don't appeal to this perfect standard. We go to Abraham and appeal to his promises. We appeal to a promise that was given prior to the commands. A promise that the Lord would bless the nations. He would bless them all ultimately through the offspring, through Jesus Christ Himself. God's promises are the foundation for salvation, not the fulfillment of the law. Now again, we've been working through this for a number of weeks now. But this is something for which I would say, Presbyterians, this is a struggle for us. Because we do emphasize holy living, and we should. Right? Should you, should you live holy? Yes. Should you obey the Ten Commandments? Yes. And there is this great temptation that we, like the Galatian church, begin to put the cart before the horse and to go back to that covenant of works, that go back to that arrangement emotionally in our soul. And to begin to find our value in our works. To find our value in how we keep the law. Well, okay, so it would then kind of beg a question, and Paul's going to answer it. But All right, so if, if the promise of God... For, for the gospel, if the promise of God precedes the law of God, what purpose does the law serve? I mean, that is that is actually a really important question. It's one that throughout church history people have answered very, very incorrectly in a number of ways. But if we are under the era of God's promises, what function does the law serve? I mean, why why in the world would we read the Ten Commandments this Sunday? I mean, why, in fact, actually, for that matter, why would I even use the Old Testament at all? And why would we use that? Why would we even consider the law at all? And... Uh, that's a great question, isn't it? I mean, if we are under the promises of God, why do we not just read the promises and never read the commands? Well, Paul answers, verse 19. Why then the law? Oh, look, that's the exact question, isn't it? <laughs> if we have the promises of God, why did he even give the law in the first place? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. You're like, oh, okay, that I got the first half of that. The second half of that is lost. All right, well, let's take a piece at a time. Why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions. And here's the reality of the matter is that God gave Abraham the promise that blessing would come through Abraham to all of the peoples of the world, and did they instantaneously all then go obey? I mean, 
we just got done with Genesis previously. Just Abraham. Let's look at him. Abraham was given the promises of God. Did he then go obey? No. Right? No. No. No, he doesn't. His life is a mixture where you see great successes and great failures held side by side all the way through. And you see his children who also love the Lord and they do the exact same thing. And you see all of these tensions. In fact, there are only really a couple of guys in the whole book of Genesis, and one of them comes prior to Abraham, that have good reputations at all. All of them are mixed at best. And you see what the Lord is saying is that recognizing his promises doesn't immediately change our heart. It's not like, oh, good, God gave promise and then we're, we're immediately made new. Abraham was changed, but he still sinned. And so the law was given in order to show our transgressions. In order to highlight the need for his promises. It was added because of transgression so that we might see it clearly. That it might be made obvious what's going on. It makes sense, doesn't it? God's promises are given. He he promises salvation. He promises His help. And God's people still continue to sin. And then as you do that, you kind of sometimes forget how much you need Him. You kind of forget it. It gets a little bit smaller. It gets a little bit lesser. And let's say, um, use an illustration. For those of you in here that were converted later in life, right? Many of you, like me, praise the Lord, converted early. I have no recollection of not walking with the Lord. Many of us in here, though, that was not our story. Some of us were converted much later in life, and we remember how we used to be. And then the Lord's grace coming in and how we were changed and how we were new and how everything was just bright and shiny and different. And then months or years or decades later, all of those old temptations didn't go away. It's not like we're converted and made perfect instantaneously. It's not like we're converted and made completely impervious, removed from temptation. It's not like we're converted and then shaped to be perfectly righteous. But instead, even in the promises of God, the law is given to highlight how desperately we need the Lord. How desperately we need Him. Right? That's why we actually have this statement of need that we read every Sunday except for Communion Sunday. Where we look at part of the scriptures and we see, alright, let's look at God's character and let's look at how I don't meet it. How I fall short of it. Let's look at how I need His help. How His promises are my only hope. I mean, let's just pick what we talked about in Sunday school today, right? Sunday school today, we're talking about worship as we're continuing in the confession of faith and looking at what biblical worship is. And I love this as an illustration because worship is one of those things that believers love to do. But let's be honest. How many times have you been to worship where you didn't want to be there and you didn't want to do it and your heart was the problem? Okay, that's one thing. And how many times have you been to worship where you, you noticed even things were done, you know, we worship the wrong way? 
I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been in worship services where caught songs that were borderline heretical. Not in this worship service, because I picked them myself. But <laughs> where we see where you're like, ah, we can't even do worship right. That thing which is the natural overflow of the love of God's people for their Savior, we can't even do that right. And the law highlights how far we have fallen, how short we come, how needy we are. You see, that's really, in essence, what it is, is the law functions as a guide to help us see how big the gap is. Right? I've used the illustration before. You know, Nikki and I, for our honeymoon, we went to uh, southwest, uh, went to Sedona, and ultimately went to the Grand Canyon. And when I got out, the first thought I had was, that looks photoshopped. It looks fake, right? It's so big. I mean, the Grand Canyon is so gigantic that your brain really can't process how big it is. And my first thought was, that looks fake. I mean, it, it, it does. It looks fake. It's so big. And the folks of the Grand Canyon, the National Park there, are very wise in having little plaques and stuff around or, you know, to help you get scope, like to help you see how big it is, right? Like this part right here, you could take a 15-story building, lay it in and drop it, and you would never see it because it would fall clean to the bottom sideways. You know, they, they give you gauges, they give you guides to help put a little bit of perspective so you can understand that right there, that's three miles across. I would never have known that, but it is. It's so big you can't wrap your brain around it. And that's in essence what the law does. It functions to give us a sense of perspective of how big the chasm is between God and man. Well, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's really neat. But he doesn't stop here. He actually continues to explain that. And this is where it gets a little bit difficult, right? Why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring. Well, so it, it highlights our sin, highlights our need for salvation until the offspring, till Christ should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So you had Moses who goes, right, he goes up on top of the mountain. You have all of the glory cloud of God and the angels there ministering. And it is delivered by the one God through an uh, intermediary, setting us up to understand Christ later. All right, so we see promises of God are the foundation for salvation, not the fulfillment of the law. We're seeing when properly understood... The law is going to point us to a need for salvation. It's going to point us to Christ. And then our last paragraph here, we're going to see that Christ is the answer. He's the salvation of his people. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? So if the promises come first and they're trustworthy and true, and the law comes second and it's to highlight our failure, are they in conflict? Right? And his answer is clear. Uh, Certainly not. And it can't be in conflict because God gives them. Right? He can't work against himself. Uh, So certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be given indeed by the law. So if there was a way that you could keep it, you could work your way to heaven. I mean, mean, he's saying it explicitly here. If there was a law that was given that you could keep, you could earn your way to heaven. But as it stands, you can't. Instead, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Now, it imprisoned me and you. We get that. It imprisoned babies in the womb. 
imprisoned older folks too, but it imprisoned all of creation. Where we see the effects of the curse and the binding of the law all throughout. So that this promise, the promise that God would save his people, would come to fruition in Jesus. Would come to fruition in Jesus. It's in essence here, Paul is uh, in a far more sophisticated fashion than my high school math teacher saying, This is the whole point. All of the promises of God and all of the law of God point to one person. All of the promises point to Jesus because he's the one who keeps them. He is the guarantor of them and he is the fulfillment of them. Lord promises to be with you. Well, how is he going to be with you? It's ultimately through Jesus. Lord promises to take care of you. How is he ultimately going to take care of you? He's going to provide Jesus. All of his promise, all of them given are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And that law... All of those rules and regulations, all of those ways in which we are to live, all of those do's and don'ts, all of those ultimately point to Jesus. Right? No other gods before me. Well, points to Jesus. He is God. We don't get another one. He is it. All right? No, no graven images. No, no images made. Right? Well, okay, why not? Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. All right, well, we take care of his name. Why? Because Jesus is his name. He's the Logos. He's the Word. All of it pointing to Jesus so that it would all come to this one person. All promise, all law, building to Christ. It is, he is the big deal. Now, what do we do with this? Honestly, I walked you through the academic argument because this one is a bit more complicated than some, but have not yet made this fully practical. What do we do with this? That's a hard question, isn't it? I mean, these principles are a bit more challenging than some. Uh, that God's promises are the foundation for salvation, that the law points us to Christ, and that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises and law of God. What, what do we do with that? Well, the first thing that we need to be doing with this is that we need to make a big, big, big deal about Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promises of God. He is the fulfillment of the law of God. That fulfillment word is a pretty big deal. It means all that those things have been pointing to all come to answer in one, and it comes to answer in Jesus and it's interesting to see how, you know, early church, Galatians is probably most likely the first book written, as best we can guess in the New Testament, how uh, shortly after, well, what does the devil go after in the church? You know, what are the first doctrines that come under assault, that heresies begin to creep up? They're all, they're all centered around Jesus. Here they're correcting the nature of the gospel. The next thing that follows is the nature of Christ. Because if you can get off track with Jesus, you'll be off track with everything else. And it's interesting how the American church, our great contribution, along, I guess, with the Germans too, is that we are actively, as a nation, undermining the person of Jesus in the church. Doubting his divinity, expanding his humanity, just making a mess of what the scriptures teach. 
making him secondary, making him not that important, making him just another teacher, things that the scriptures do not teach. If we're going to follow this passage and passages like this, we're going to make a big deal about Christ. We're going to seek to have Him dominate our thinking, dominate our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, dominate all the ins and outs of our lives. And secondly, is it's going to shape how we see the promises of God differently. Right? If we think that all of the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus, it means that even though I don't yet have, I haven't yet received those promises, I know they will be fulfilled. Right? Let's, let's just pause and think about this for a second. The Lord promises to take care of His people. Well, I'm not dead yet. So I don't know ultimately how he's going to do that yet, right? I mean, I, I'm, he's not done taking care of me. I'm still alive. I still could foul things up really badly. And he's promised to take care of me. How do I know that he will? Because Jesus has already come. He's already lived, died, resurrected, gone to glory. And I know that his promises are faithful because I've seen it in Christ. And so it gives me a hope to trust in the promises of God. It gives me a hope to rest in what God is doing. It also gives me a new way to view the law, to view the commands of God. Should I keep them? Yes. Why? Because they point me to Jesus. Not because they get me into heaven, but because they point me to Jesus You know, my high school teacher was right on the money with math. And it's not really about theory. It's building to the word problems. You need to be able to use it. You need to be able to put it into action. And likewise, the promises of God are good and great and wonderful because the Lord is good and great and wonderful, but they're building to something better. <laughs> the Lord Jesus. And the law is good. Scripture's clear. It's pointing us to Jesus. The challenge for us as believers today is how will we then be captivated by, be focused upon, trust in and walk with the Lord Jesus? It's what the whole thing builds to, the fulfillment of the promises of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, though this passage is very difficult. We thank you that... Though we may not fully understand, we know we don't fully understand it because we won't fully understand it ever. You're perfect in that regard. It's so deep. We're not. But we do ask that you would impart your word to our souls that we may have it shape how we think, feel, and act. Or may my words and works be forgotten. May your word go forth into our lives that we may be reshaped in such a way. Fill us with the promises of God in Christ Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen.